welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. This is episode 187, covering the second half of the uh, An Echo of Things to Come by James Islington. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Jared Livingston. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Um, before we jump into the main discussion and summary, of course, uh, just a reminder, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud and get access to tons of bonus content there. But for now, let's, uh, let's jump into the summary. In the second half of An Echo of Things to Come, the focus shifts a little further north. Davian and Achelle head up to the boundary while Asha and Brashada go to Delanus, and Weir maneuvers to keep his position as North Warden. Isiliar attacks the palace, believing Caden to be there, and is only stopped by Alaris. In the aftermath, Desia realizes that Aelric is gone, dealing with the fallout of his intentional loss in the Tournament of Swords. Before Davian and Achelle get to the boundary, they're attacked by a new creature called Elatai. Achelle is badly wounded, but Davian manages to save her. Meanwhile, Asha and Brashada get to Delanus and find it defended by Dargaithan. As they attack, hoping to gain entry, Asha falls into the river. Brashada saves her, and they find their way into the Great Library. There, Asha discovers an account of the Siphon and the Shadows. Caden arrives in Delanus as well, and Brashada reveals herself as Nethgala. She tricks Asha into killing her, which transfers the Siphon to her. At the Boundary, the Augurs arrive to find that it is indeed weakening, and that the Khan workings on it are far more complex than they can handle. They find what appears to be an entrance through the Boundary into Talon Gaul. Meanwhile, Weir seizes upon Asha's plans to convince Galadra to go north to the Boundary, hoping to retain his position as North Warden. He agrees to step down if she's not convinced of the problem at hand. Caden, meanwhile, releases the Lith, transferring their power to Asha. The Lith are free to return to their homelands. But back at the boundary, Davian and Fessy follow Ashel into Talangal, only to stumble over a nest of Elatai. Ashel had been controlled by a link to them after her wounding. There, they discover a set of Telesthesia armor? Telesthesia? Telesthesia? Uh, didn't look up the pronunciation on that one. Uh, which they hope can be used to get back through the boundary. Asha and Aaron leave the boundary to find the final tributary, traveling to a secluded island where they meet Siner. He admits to killing Rohin and stealing the amulet. They are attacked soon, however, by a new group of Banes, and Asha uses her power to destroy them. The boundary starts to crumble, and a huge army of Banes attacks, overwhelming the defenses. Galadra is killed after new Elatai are created from the corpses of those they killed. In the climactic encounter, Caden travels to Ilshim Gathel Teth to fight with Meldir and Asiliar. Davian and Fessy are also brought there as prisoners. Though Caden kills Asiliar, Meldir captures him and begins torturing him. Fessy flees, and Davian discovers Caden is being tortured. Though Meldir reveals Caden's true identity to Davian, Davian still stands by him and kills Meldir with Lycanius. Caden then convinces Davian to kill him in turn, but with a normal sword, so that he can reincarnate and escape Talon Gaul. Finally, Caden wakes up in a new body, but it comes with a price. Another new memory, this time of him killing Davian thousands of years in the past. <sighs> so, um, before we get into the style and, and all the discussion... Uh, I'm going to make a quick announcement here. Uh, we are not going to be continuing on with The Light of All That Falls. Uh, I tried. I really tried. Um, and it's not that I hate these books, 
But I just, like, especially in the second half of this one, every time I opened the book, it was like pulling teeth. I just was not having a good time reading it. I was not enjoying what was going on. Uh, and the thought of reading another seven or 800 pages of this story and this writing style with these characters just makes my soul, my soul shrivel up. And, uh, I, about that. I, I, I can't do it. Like I forcing myself to read things that I am not enjoying to this extent, uh, is not something I have time for anymore. Um, I don't really like abandoning things on inking out loud. Uh, I, you know, at this point, I think a lot of our listeners know I was not a big fan of the Dresden Files, but I, I soldiered on mostly because Rob was really, really enjoying them. Uh, but Ruin of Kings, you know, I didn't finish that book. Uh, we only did one episode when we were planning to do more than that. Um, you know, it just, uh, it, it's not, it's not going to be good conversation if I force myself to read something that I'm disliking that much uh and this is gonna free up a spot on our schedule uh next week will be a return to star wars uh john is going to be back on the show and we're going to finish the alphabet squadron books with victory's price instead so we we have a plan but uh this is my apology for those lycanius fans out there who were maybe hoping to get our thoughts on the final book uh unfortunately it's not going to happen yeah, I think uh, my judgment probably isn't as harsh as yours. I could certainly see myself at some point uh, picking up the last one, mainly because out of curiosity, just to find out what happens. Sure. But I do agree that this one was definitely more of a slog than the first one. <clears throat> so this one felt all over the place to me. Uh, the first book it was at least focused, I, I thought. Uh, even when there were some weird pacing choices in in the second half of uh, the first book where they kind of zoomed back from Delanis to Ilan Ilan and then puttered around for a while and then had a really, really quick cl- uh, climactic battle. This one, it just... It felt like the the plot lines in the first half of the book were just super disconnected from where they went in the second half, especially um, like everything with Davian and Ishel in uh, Tall Shen in the first half of the book felt totally pointless to me by the end of it. Um, and like, it just... Yeah, I mean, I always thought from the beginning, like... Why are we spending was, all this time instead of going directly to the boundary to begin with? Or or at least like find something of substance to to you know make up those pages. Find something to really help the main characters grow, uh, real conflicts for them to grapple with. But with with that, it just it felt like filler. And then we get to the end of it and things were just so jumbled. Uh, the again the the pacing was frenetic where it felt like some of these scenes really deserved to have more time spent on them but at the same time 
I wasn't reading it fast. Like it, it really felt like a slog because I was so disconnected from the text where, and I, I don't know exactly how to describe that. Like, it's such a weird thing. I've never had that feeling before where I'm reading a book that is moving so fast and so chaotically, but feeling like it's a slog at the same time. I think some of it, I feel like, um, he spends a lot of time on things that are unimportant. And then some of the big turning points in the plot or the big decisions that the characters make, it's almost no time spent on those. So it's like, yeah, he's magnifying the unimportant stuff for some reason. Yeah, this goes back to, I think, what I talked about on the last episode where he's he's writing in a tradition, right? He's He is clearly writing a book that he means to be the next stepping stone in a lineage of epic fantasy that includes The Wheel of Time and J.R.R. Tolkien. But Islington ends up f- focusing on, in my opinion, the wrong things in order to hit that epic scope and epic page count. Uh, it, his world feels shallow to me. It's, there's clearly an intricate backstory with with these this group of people with the Venerate, and that he spent a lot of time on. But the world around them feels very shallow. And when you think about the Wheel of Time and the insane page count there, in large part that's because Jordan spends so much time making sure the world isn't shallow. He's making sure the world is rich and vibrant and deep. And that there isn't just one narrow alley of history that we're going down. Yeah, I mean, so, dude, like, <clears throat> I don't think, it doesn't really feel like you know three or four places, more than three or four places well at all. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, even you mentioned... Like, there's clearly a detailed history with the Venerate, for example. But one of my biggest problems in this one was it's just so hard to follow the flashbacks. Like, I understand yeah. what he's trying to do, but I just, I, I couldn't keep track of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't blame you. Like, it's... <clears throat> and, and I think... um. You know, I kind of talked about this in part one as well, but I just haven't cared about Davian's storyline at all. So whenever it came to his sections, you know, it's kind of like you said, where it's really hard to pick up. And whereas Asha, I continued to really like her stuff, though. Yeah, yeah. So for uh, me, yeah, Asha, it's just like... Right. Uh, yeah, it's just inconsistent, and like I said, I feel like it just dragged in some parts where it shouldn't have, and then skipped over the things that I really wanted more of. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, for example, thought that you know their like investigation and research at the boundary was like pretty cool, but in the grand scheme of things, it's barely any time spent on it in the book. Right. And I kind of so, thought that'd be like a major pillar of this second book, but it's kind of just thrown yeah, in at the end. Like that would have been a better use of space in the first half. Like you said, if they had just gone straight there and then spent time yeah, exactly. at the boundary exactly. trying to figure things out and learning about it, I could have so seen like, that. 
it's know. like the plot I find very interesting and intriguing, but it's just it's the execution just not isn't executed. there. Yeah. So here's a question for you: How do you feel about the names in this in this series? Neutral. <laughs> no specific way. So, I, I I felt like that mostly in the first book. In this book, it really started to get on my nerves how and and I'm going to preface this like I am not a linguist, I'm not an etymologist, I'm not a hardcore Tolkien language guy. Like I don't know theory around creating words or languages or anything like that. But as a writer, naming things is one of my least favorite parts of writing fantasy. I feel like I'm terrible at naming. Uh, names just feel like random, like names that I come up with often just feel like random mishmashes of, of letters. That is how the names in this feel to me. Like really the, eh. like that, that final location, Ilshan Gathel Teth. That is a terrible name. <laughs> It's certainly hard to read. Like, it just... I, I don't know. Like, they're... I like some of the antagonist <sighs> names, like Nethgala and Shemaleth. Uh, so, this was another thing. Like, uh, meld, like, so many of the names ended up similar to each other. Um, the number of A names. Alaris and Aelric and... You know, it, and and then I don't know. It, it felt like he he had a, just a couple of different like name structures, and then he built every name out of those like three or four different structures, and so you end up with a lot of really really similar names. I mean, um, some of it too is he was trying to have the venerate go through like different names through time, like uh, what, what am I trying yeah. to say? Similar deviations of one name <laughs> well so there's a i have another issue with uh <laughs> more on the character side of things um i am outright pissed off that the two most interesting characters from the first book brashada and malshash ended up just being venerate like other people hiding behind other names i'm like like I was so mad when when Brashado was like, "Ha ha, I'm Nethgala." Neth like, I was be. like, "Fuck <laughs> off!" Like, <laughs> uh, also, and, so, and because of that, she just like dies off screen. So yeah, yeah, just in, in, mm. <sighs> there was so much potential there in Brashada's character, and then yeah. nope, nope, like. I kind of and, had a and that's feeling, another, though. A that's feeling another reason why show. that's another reason why the world feels shallow to me is that even when we start getting interesting characters on the periphery of the world, it turns out nope, they're not on the periphery. They are the same five people in the middle of the world. Mm. Like, yeah. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Another <laughs> another disappointment for me was I thought there'd be more time travel stuff, and there really wasn't. I guess until you consider the memory at the end 
Right. Uh, and this is another reason why, like, maybe this is just getting into character didn't stuff he, with didn't Davian. Didn't like he was setting that up a lot? Yeah. The first I, I really felt like the time-traveling Davian stuff from the first book, the, the scene where he appears to Asha... You're like we're, you know, with like the chains and stuff, and then his that? stuff with Malshash. That was by far the most interesting stuff, and yeah. I thought that was what we were going to end up getting in the second half of this book, and then all the third book. And then it's like, oh nope, like none at all. There's such a such a potential depth to be explored there that he's like he set up and then isn't touching on, and maybe that's just what the entire third book is about, but. I'm never going to find out because I'm not going to read it. <laughs> the other thing that continued to bug me in this one was just like <clears throat> not being quite sure who I should be rooting for and who the antagonists are. Like, I think it kind of felt like he, you know, was trying to make a point about that, but it's just wasn't executed very well. Right. You know, like he's trying to find the gray character. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he should have leaned a little more into if he's going to set up the world the way he did. He at some point he needed to lean more into a like good versus evil, dark versus light thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this isn't like I guess like the really big like deep backstory is a good like a creator versus an evil yeah. deity but but in practice it's just yeah. like everybody sucks and and nobody really knows what side they're fighting on and and so much of it becomes self-interested and i don't know uh, yeah i like I really hate to say it, but like I'm, I'm excited to not read more of this. I wouldn't say that. I, like I said at the beginning, I still think there's a chance I'll pick up the last one, um, but not yeah. right away. Like I need a break. Sure, and like part of this may also just be like I had a really rough reading week where I I finished three books this week, Oof. and uh, one of them was really good. Uh, it was the final Garrett P.I. book by Glenn Cook, oh. Wicked Bronze Ambition. Uh, and then I gave another shot to an indie book. And I'm, I'm not going to name names or, or anything. You know, that's not what. But it was terrible. Like, it was just not good. And and like, like it was one of those things where the author should have just used his notes to run a D&D campaign with his friends rather than write a novel. Because... It, it that's what it felt like was he was just going on these long explanations of like world building and backstory for characters rather than spending actual time on writing a story and 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 building a narrative and then it's so like and then this on top of it and this now this is a much better book than that indie book <laughs> like i i want to make it very clear here that in in pure like competency James Islington is a fine writer like he's he's not a poor writer of prose I, I don't like there are some quibbles I have with his style 
but overall this isn't something where where i'm just like wow you're clearly an amateur how did you ever get this published that sort of a thing um i just bounced off really hard of his story and and the structure he chose to put it in so yeah i think um it just felt flat to me like the second one i i think there was so i think there was a lot of promise after the first one and i was pretty excited to move on to this one but here it just felt flat for most of it there are certain scenes that were fun and interesting but beyond that i wasn't into it very much yeah yeah outside of asha outside of asha yeah like again asha probably was the most interesting in the second half of this but even then do you really Um, feel like there was a big payoff with any characters at the end Maybe Davian. I I don't know. Like eh. <laughs> part of so part of this is you know maybe more of a style point here. Like in the first book, here I never felt any tension. Like I never felt like these characters were in real danger. Uh, in the first book, the only time where I was just like, oh, crap, something really bad might happen was when um, they were going to change the tenets. And mm-hmm. what was it? Ionis, uh like showed up and abused the, the tenets to take control. And and then Islington didn't even follow through with that. Like it ended up working out fine anyway. And And so when you... As a writer, when you can't convince the readers that anything bad is actually going to happen, that robs the story of a lot of tension. I think that's probably also why this feels like a slog to me. Uh, even felt- when there's this like frenetic, action-packed stuff, I don't feel drama in the action because I just know the main characters are going to be fine. I mean, I felt a lot of drama with Caden and... Some of his, some of his flashbacks. I think there's tension there, but it still comes back to the same thing where I'm just not sure who I'm rooting for. Well, so yeah, like some of the flashbacks, yes, but at the same time, you know, Caden in the present time, you know, yeah. those flashbacks, like like he turned out okay anyway. There's so a tense scene with a shell, but then she made it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I did think Asha was going to die. When? When she went into the river? No. Like, at the end, be... Like, when she was fighting before she got in the, like, last tributary. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> hmm. Uh, Davian, I, I felt, felt nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even when he's, like, captured and being brought to no. the venerate and... Yeah. Well, mostly, well, and some of that, though, is because you know that in the future he time travels, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so. that's the double-edged sword of time travel, is yeah. that it, it, by necessity, removes tension from storytelling. Mm-hmm. Un- unless you can convince the reader of 
alternate timelines. Depends on the time travel rules that you're following. Yeah. But, like... But that's a really, really fine line to walk. It's a tough thing to pull off. And I just don't think Islington pulled it off, at least through two books here. I was so disappointing there wasn't more of that. <laughs> I was really looking forward to it. Yeah. At least, so, uh, one, one literary conceit that I did enjoy was that um, the swords got more use. Yeah, but I mean... <sighs> Do you, it doesn't really go into any one of them in depth. I mean, you get a little bit with Whisper, you know, yeah. with uh, I guess there's Asha. And, there's knowing as well with Asha. Yeah. Mm, I guess I just wasn't excited about those. Okay. Because they, yeah, I don't know, they, they felt so secondary to the rest of the magic system. That's fair. That is fair. I may just have a little bit of a like a personal connection there because my like the first fantasy novel I ever wrote uh, had a similar setup where there were these special swords and and like one sword to rule the rest and I mean I I'm know. used to it. There's <laughs> like I've read almost all of the Shannara books and there's swords. Oh, of course, yeah. All throughout that. <laughs> um. I don't know. One question I have, though, is did you feel like you had a solid understanding of Essence and Khan? Because here's some of the problem for me was that I think he's tr he was trying to explain. He was using Davian's storyline to try and explain some of that. But since I wasn't into Davian's storyline, I like half paid attention. And I feel like at the so end of this, I don't have a real good understanding of how they work i feel like i have a better grasp of essence than i do of con um essence you know just being this kind of energy that flows from all life um it's i see it kind of like the force where it, it, it's like generated by living things mm -hmm. uh and in in effect it does a lot of the same things as the force or it has a lot of the same applications, but of course it it's almost like a combination of the Force and the One Power. Uh, but Khan, I, I think he got a little, maybe a little too metaphysical with it, where I, whereas like Khan can affect essence, but it doesn't like I'm already confused. so if I'm remembering if I'm getting this correctly, Khan <laughs> comes from the like chaos plane. That like the yeah, the, the rift, dark, yeah, whatever it's called. Um, and so like you can use con to affect essence, but and you can use it to do a lot of the same things as essence. But I never it's felt like a solid understanding in function of it. supposed to be totally different. I yeah, it's like I feel like to an extent maybe I understood aspects of it, but I. It's just I also didn't care enough to really like buckle down and try to reread parts to get a better understanding. So for me, because I didn't understand it that well, I don't know. Maybe that's my fault. But like, so then the climactic scenes or the big action scenes with it just had less of an impact for me because I'm not like truly understanding what's happening. Sure. Yeah. 
Do you think, um, after reading two books of this, on the scale of soft to hard magic, where do you think this falls? Um, what are we considering soft and hard magic? So, like, hard magic would be, like you potions. know, Cosmere Investiture, where there's um, established rules and defined limitations. and like science to it. Yeah, like, and then quotes. soft magic is, like, Lord of the Rings, where there are wizards who can use magic, but... Eh? Uh... Uh, somewhere in the middle, I suppose. I don't think there's been a lot of rules established at all. Yeah, that was the thing for me, is that it felt like, from the start, he wanted this to feel like a hard magic system, but well, that's some of he the plot, didn't actually that? establish oh, the rules to it. Oh, shadows can actually use vessels, and oh, shadows can be healed, so it's like, I think the rules that you start with are flipped on their head. Right. Right. Which, I mean... Like, in a way, it that that whole thing about shadows using vessels, that feels like a Sanderson-type magic system twist, where it's like, okay, we didn't know this rule existed, but it makes sense in the context of the other rules we did know. I mean, I guess there's some, like... There's some rules, like uh, if you use too much of your own essence, like your own essence, you're going to die, like that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, but like in in effect, in the final accounting, it feels a lot more like a soft magic and I can wave my hand and make it solve problems when I need it, when I need it to. Especially, I'd say that's especially true with... Um, like the scenes with the lithe or when he's going through port the portals. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just more convenient than anything. And and the just bewildering array of different things that Khan can do, it, it that made it seem like Khan can, you can turn invisible with it, you can control people's minds with it, you can uh, shapeshift with it, you can use it to open portals or time travel you can use it like and so it just feels like the shotgun blast of potential you know uh, magic uses and it and it doesn't feel like there's any rhyme or reason to any of that it's just like the author needed this magical effect to be used in the story so he's like well Khan can do that now like yeah I can see that that probably contributes to some of my non-understanding of it yeah yeah I don't think it's bad though. Like, no, like these aren't bad books. They're they're not poorly written. They're they're not. Uh, there is one. I don't know. I the one part I would say is poorly written is the romance. Uh, like, I yeah, guess it depends. Yeah. Are you saying poorly written from like a purely technical perspective? Yeah, from a technical perspective. Okay, okay. No, it's yeah. definitely not that. Yeah, like it's not amazing. It, there, there are lots and lots of writers out there who who can construct a better sentence than James Islington, but it's far from the worst thing that I've read. It's not even the worst thing I've read this week. You know, I would say, I would say, I mean, I don't think they're bad books overall. 
Yeah, but the, I think these very are. I, I would put them slightly below average in the final accounting. Uh, I like as for me something bad is I don't want to know more and I still want to know more with these so somewhere in the middle I guess. Yeah, that that was where I ended up landing is that like I just don't care uh, as of the end of the book and that's that's the death knell. You know. That's the problem that I had with Malazan. It just, you know, he didn't give me anything to care about. That's the problem I had with you know, Brent Weeks and Joe think? Abercrombie. Like, Is there like I, one big thing he could have done differently that you think would have made you care? You know, I keep going back to what I brought up in the first book. I think this series needed to be more books and shorter books. Which is funny when it feels like a slog. <laughs> but I really think a restructuring would help this series tremendously. Because there are interesting enough ideas in there but the presentation of them doesn't flow for me. If if he had been forced to work within tighter confines uh, and and make his make his scenes more deliberate, um, m- more intentional, maybe, uh, I think that would have helped a great deal. The maybe this is you know, a symptom of this originally being a self-published book where he got to write that first book unfettered. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then maybe the publisher felt like, okay, well, it, these need to match in tone and structure, so do your thing with the second and third books. And really he needed, like, a, a tighter editorial vision when he was working on the shadow of what was lost. For me, I would have really appreciated POV from some of the other venerate, perhaps. <clears throat> because that would have hmm. given me, I think, a much better understanding of their whole backstory. Like, you, you would you want something like the occasional forsaken point, points of view in the Wheel of Time? Yeah, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Some, I don't think some venerate socials. Venerate socials. I mean, why not? Yeah. Don't you feel like you would have understood some of the motivations a lot better between Caden and the rest of the venerate? And some of those I flashbacks mean, would have hit more. Possibly, yeah. I at the same time, I don't want to fully gainsay Islington's narrative desire here like obviously he wanted this series to be heavily driven by mysteries and i don't want to say like well the way to do this is to completely throw your vision out the window and just write a different kind of story um well i don't know that and and at the same time it's like a different kind of story but but if it gave if it gave more of those answers you know undercutting the mysteries yeah, I guess so. What I mean, you're saying his main thing here is mystery around the the characters. Yeah, like he he tried to write this series as a puzzle, um, for for both the readers and the characters to figure out. And I like puzzle stories when done well. There's a reason I love Gene Wolfe, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but. But I think 
I think it gets frustrating when the puzzle pieces aren't there's, I mean, aren't there enough for the reader. There's a difference between puzzle and just hiding. Withholding like, information, yeah. Yeah. And that's how I felt about Malazan, where he, the the author there, just went so far out of his way to withhold information from the reader that I felt totally disconnected from everything, and I didn't care. Uh, here, it wasn't quite that extreme, but like I don't think that was directly the reason that I am dropping the series. But I think the puzzle aspect of it could have been handled better. I don't feel like at the end we're getting a puzzle piece and then it all comes together yes that is a good point yeah it it feels like all these wow that's amazing all this makes a lot of sense now Eh. it feels like he gives you a couple of puzzle pieces and maybe like he gives you three or four puzzle pieces and only two of them go to the puzzle and you have to figure out which ones and then two of them go to a different puzzle yeah to it to a fake puzzle i mean i It's funny because I definitely like those kind of stories too, where it's like, you know, it's just. I mean, like I, th- a sh- a I think of the book of, of the new sun, you know, sh- a shroud of mystery over the backstory and some of the characters. Yeah, like that's great, but you know, mm-hmm. just felt forced here. It, it did. Like when it comes down to it, I think just a lot of this was uh, overwrought and. If it again, if it had just been scaled down a little bit, focused a little bit better, um, if that creative energy had been channeled in more efficient directions, this could have ended up being a really fun, awesome seven or eight book series. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just three, right? Like it's a trilogy. Yeah, it's a trilogy. So. And the third, I'm assuming, is like a similar length. Uh, I believe so. Uh, let's see, the light of all that falls, uh, word count. So apparently about 240,000 words, uh, wait, Mm, to 260, the final book is 260. Um, for the light of all that falls. Shadow of what was lost is uh, about 216. And Echo of Things to Come is about, let's see, so that's 115, about 230. So they get longer each time. So the next one's longer. Oh, man. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think this should have been just more more and shorter books. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. Like, I think some of the, like, we're always talking about how you're kind of surprised at the end of it when you realize how much happened, but how slow it felt. Yeah. And I feel like it is, some of that it is, just is just a weird phenomenon. It's not spending the time on the right things, in my opinion. <clears throat> okay. 
Well, I, I want to hear from listeners. If, if you guys yeah. disagree or agree with us on this, you know, let us know on, on Facebook or on Discord. Uh, I have read through, you, like, um, you know, Goodreads reviews on these, and they're very positive. <clears throat> Interesting. Okay. Like, I do not typically read Goodreads reviews. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I've glanced through them. What, are you, like, against Goodreads reviews? <laughs> No, I mean, I use Goodreads. I just, I tend to not, um, I tend to not put much stock in amateur reviews, mm. like hobbyist reviews, uh, because I know that I read and look for dramatically different things mm-hmm. than your average fantasy reader, uh, in, yeah. in large part because of my education and because I'm looking for things to apply and learn in my own writing that most people just don't care about. <laughs> but I also so. feel like I can like <clears throat> appreciate and understand why maybe a ton of people like something, even though I don't, but I really don't get that on this one. Hmm. Yeah. Like I can, I can see the appeal of the world building in this. I can see why, Wheel of Time fans would pick this up and and like them. But I think that's only a, a portion of Wheel of Time fans. Yeah. Like I mean, to be clear, I still don't think it's like bad. It's just meh. Right. I think that's a so so here this is this is why I don't trust Goodreads reviews. This book has a 4.26 rating. Yeah, on, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. On Goodreads. Yeah. The Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe has a 3.82. <laughs> well, like, okay. Yeah. I Something tells me the majority of people have trouble even understanding what's happening in that, so... Yeah, I so I actually had a, a kind of a funny conversation with Lauren last night. Uh, I about mean, I, good I have reads reviews on so. on Shadow of the Torturer, um, <clears throat> where where uh, so like that other really really terrible indie book that I read last night uh, that has like a four point oh eight on Goodreads, and I was like, that has a substantially better rating than Gene Wolfe does. And and Lauren was like, "Go look up the reviews. Go go check out um, what people who didn't like Gene Wolf said." And the first review I read was like the most pretentious, like self masturbatory uh, book review I've ever read, and like trashing Gene Wolf. And all the comments on his review were calling him out for it and being like. Everything that you're accusing Wolf of doing, you just did in your own review. And <laughs> and then him like trying to fire back at them and being like, no, no. And Do you think? Uh, yeah. Well, I, don't know. I would guess that some of the review scores might correlate to age. I could see that. I mean, I I for sure gave better reviews on the whole when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I've become more critical as I've gotten older and as I have done more writing of my own. 
Yeah. But, yeah, to, to bring this back to uh, an echo of things to come, do you have any anything about specific character points that you want to talk about before we kind of wrap things up on Lycanius? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, my, my biggest, like, character thing was just the recycling of interesting characters, turning them all into Venerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, just how much of a disappointment that was. Like, I... I saw so much potential for for new characters for a, an expanded cast and then to have it you know this is sort of the same issue I have with some of the philosophy behind the sequel Star Wars trilogy where like raise a palpatine you know and it's like for for once just you have this whole huge universe in front of you write about new characters mm-hmm. <laughs> like and and here it feels like that in a microcosm. Oh, I definitely see that. Yeah. Uh, do you have favorite scenes from this one? Um. Oh man, I always forget to prepare these. I mean, I there are, there are scenes that I like in there. Yeah. Um. I don't think they live up, for example, to my favorite scenes from the first one. Like, uh, I enjoyed one action scene that stood out to me was when Caden is first coming out of the portal into that, like, snow city, and he fights with Isiliar. Uh-huh. That scene really stood out to me. I thought that was cool. Um, The other one was when... Uh, Davian, Fessy, and Nichelle were like under Talon Gar, Talon Gol. Talon Gol. And going Talon through Gull. like the nest of whatever they're called. Yeah. Intel. Yeah. Intel. Um, that was fun. And I mean, I'm biased, but probably uh, Asha's final scene when like her her fight on the island before she gets in the tributary yeah that that scene with asha is probably my favorite in the book um one scene from the first half that like it, it was a quieter scene but i enjoyed the spectacle of was when uh davian like embarrasses the council in tall shen where you like like teleports up behind the dude um that was that was like that's the sort of fun scene that i wanted more of in the first book like if if he you know this is why if you split the first book into two books and give yourself time he could have had more fun with the magic school yeah setting at the start it's like, funny, like, you open the yeah. first book and you're like, oh, this is going to be, like, a magic school situation or university. <laughs> and it's like, nope, 20 pages in and they're gone. And then even in this one, do you really get a yeah. lot at the toll? Like, You don't. And no. and that's why it felt like what little time we spent there ended up being pointless. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so that that scene and, yeah, the scene with, with Asha just, like, wrecking... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. The 
I also did kind of like, you know, the, just that approach to Delanis and they find all the Dargaithan blocking the way. You're just like, ooh, you know. Yeah. I mean, again, I like snake creatures, so. <laughs> See, for me, it's really hard to visual like visualize how they're moving around because I just see a snake in my head, like literally. I balanced, think of like, Naga from Warcraft. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah. Do you have any just like final thoughts on Lycanius? That we haven't already touched on. Overall, I mean, I gave what I gave the first one two point five, and I would give this one two. Um, mm-hmm. And that being said, like two point five for me is like an okay average book, you know. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, I think, unlike you, I'll probably finish it at some point. But like I said before, I I definitely need a break. Um, yeah. <laughs> or at least, like, you know, have something else in between it before I do so. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think it's bad. Yeah. It just it doesn't hit the mark for me. Right. Right. Yeah, I gave the first book three stars on Goodreads, and I gave this one two stars. Um, yeah. I, think, I think probably if I were to g- break it down into decimals, it would have been more like 2.5 and 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, like these are not terrible books. No. They're just not doing it for me. Uh, yeah. Especially when I did just read a terrible book and I'm like, okay, you know, that, that puts it in perspective. Where I, this week I read a one-star book, a two-star book, and a five-star book. <laughs> Part of why I'm interested in the third one is like, you know, writers get better over time. I'm curious if he changes anything up in the third one. That's true. And I think there was a pretty big publication gap, wasn't there? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious now. Um, I'm going to look up his Wikipedia bibliography. 2014 and then 2018 and 2019. So the big gap was between book one and book two. Hmm. Interesting. So, he, well, may then that sounds to me like he probably wrote the last two at the same time, almost. Yeah, I think probably, you know, he got, uh, after he got signed. Here's a the, crazy, or in, I don't know about crazy, an interesting thought. The first one he self-published, and the last two he did not, right? Correct. Do you think he got bad direction from an editor or from the publisher or he felt more constrained now that he wasn't self-published? Well, I am looking at his Wikipedia page and under career, it says Islington stated that writing the second novel was much more stressful than writing his debut in part because of the increased pressure that comes from being signed by a major major publishing company. Well, (laughs) that answers that question. There you go. So, I don't know, like, yeah, I kind of, I want to see if he's able to do anything different in the last one, but I don't know, from what you're saying there, it sounds like maybe not. I do see also on his Wikipedia that he has two more books planned. I don't know if it's a duology or just the first two books in a new series or something called The Hierarchy, 
I oh, like I would maybe world? be interested. Yeah, I'd maybe be interested in trying something else from him to see, you know, if if he's going to fall into the same patterns that I had problems with mm-hmm. in in these books, or if this is, you know, constrained to this particular story. Mm-hmm. So who knows if if James Islington has a new book come out in the next few years, um, Inking Out Loud may revisit him. Yeah. But I think that brings us to the end of our discussion on the books. Of course, we still have the final draft. So uh, what are you drinking over there? Uh, Today I have an interesting one. Um, So this is called Howling Gourds. You can probably guess what kind of beer it is. It's a pumpkin ale. Yeah. Trying to get into the fall spirit, but... It is that time of year. (laughs) It's also like 95 today here in Arizona, so... Oof. Oh, it's a beautiful fall day in Fort Collins. This one's weird. So um, it's from Trader Joe's, and apparently they have oh. like a house brand brewing company called Joseph's Joseph's Brew that is actually brewed by some company in San Jose. Interesting. Um, but it's actually pretty good. Like I'm. <clears throat> it's very um, you know, typical fall thing, but. It's pretty good. It's a little heavy on the spice, I feel like, but the pumpkin's really good. Okay. Man, very interesting. Ah, uh, well, I am uh, I am drinking a non-alcoholic beer, again, uh, from Athletic Brewing Company. Uh, this is their non-alcoholic Goza. It's, and it's really good, honestly. Uh, they mm. nailed the, the flavor profile, just the right amount of salinity in this nice tart Where's the athletic brewing company? So they have um, they have two locations, one in Connecticut and one in California. Um, but they've they've kind of made a name for themselves in the last year or so uh, as one of the better non-alcoholic brewers out there, and that has definitely been my experience with them. Uh, even their worst stuff, I've been at least pleased by and in fact i ordered a uh a limited case to ship directly to me uh because you know they have they have like a couple of ipas and a lager and a golden ale that are regularly on shelves in stores out here and then they'll occasionally have the specialty stuff like this goza pop-up or the uh, cerveza atletica the vienna lager um but on their website, they have a bunch of stuff that's only available directly from them. And I ordered their Oktoberfest and their Italian Pilsner. So I'm excited to try those when they arrive. I'm having a hard time picturing what a non-alcoholic beer tastes like. I mean, is it hoppy? Like, So it depends on the style of beer. Um, some not good NA beers taste bad. They taste like, you know water beer Uh um but a really well done non-alcoholic beer just tastes like that kind of beer uh like this goza just tastes like a traditional goza it's very nice interesting yeah uh but that is not my thematically appropriate beer uh i i have to talk about another one um and this one i was just kind of googling around looking up stuff i've never tried this beer uh 
as as far as I can tell, this was a 2017 release. It's from Ween's Brewing Company in California. And it's a triple IPA, 11% ABV, which is what, uh, you know, popped out to me. And I was like that. I've had a couple of triple IPAs in my life. I've had a couple of IPAs above 10%. And they're always just these massive flavor bombs, usually extremely bitter. Nope, uh, no, not for me. There, there's there's kind of a, an upper edge of what I like. Um, like, I'm imagining this probably tastes a lot like Mercenary from Odell, only even more bitter and boozy. Like, Mercenary is a, a double IPA. I think it's an excellent beer. I think it's a 9.3%. And, uh, and, and they really nailed the flavor profile on 11% that. 11% IPA? But yeah, 11% IPA. <laughs> like, this is, this is not a stout. higher ABV than some, like, yeah, barrel-aged stouts and barley wines. Mm-hmm. So... I'll have to keep an eye out and see if I can ever find uh, a bottle of this because it sounds fascinating. I don't know if I would like it or not, but uh, but the name of this beer is Reincarnation. <laughs> That's fitting. It's very fitting for for the thing that I the the thematic reincarnation of characters as the venerate are apparently everybody in the world in in Lycanius, but also of course the. Very important reincarnation at the end of the book yeah. with Caden. Well, the theme streak is alive and well. Yes. Yes, it is. I don't know uh, how you're going to keep it up. There's going to be a point where you can't find one. <clears throat> uh, yeah. I mean, it, I'm very fortunate that there has been the explosion of craft beer yes. uh, in the last 15, 20 years that we've experienced in the U.S., um, and elsewhere, really. So, but yeah, I, I think that brings us to a wrap on an echo of things to come. This has been episode 187 of the Inking Out Loud. Next up, as I said at the top of the show, is going to be Victory's Price by Alexander Freed. We're going to have John back on for that one. Uh, hit up good old Star Wars again, some Disney canon expanded universe. If you want to check that out early or get access to uh, bonus bonus content like a newsletter, original fiction written by myself or Rob. Um, you know, maybe request a book for for us to cover on the show. You can find us on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/inkingoutloud, or on Coffee. That's ko-fi.com/slash/inkingoutloud. As always, I have been your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is the excellent Jared Livingston. Awesome to be here as always. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.